0: This is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello everybody, it is Friday, October the 7th, 2022. Some of my favorite shows recently have been about how we remember the past in what form and with what message did a, a wonderful show, I thought, recently with the magnificent um, uh, graphic writer, artist Kate Beaton from Canada. Uh, she has a new book out called Ducks, which attempts uh, to remember her youth or her growing up in her work in the oil sands. Of course, the work of graphic artists is in becoming increasingly popular. Um, When it comes to serious subjects, nothing is more serious, of course, than the Holocaust. And we've done lots of shows about the message and form of remembering the Holocaust. We did a show with the historian Wendy Lauer on photography. Uh, She has a new book out, The Ravine, which remembers the Holocaust in terms of uh, a single tragic photo of the Murder of a mother and her child by uh, Ukrainian Nazis. Uh, many other shows, many of them indeed about remembering the nature of the Holocaust. One with very uh, uh, a very talented young writer, Linda Kinsler, has a new book out, coming to this court and cry: How the Holocaust ends and how to remember it. Some people, of course, remember the Holocaust in um, in, in inspirational terms, we had Judy Battalion on the show recently, has a book out about how uh, some Jewish women at least resisted the Nazis. Um, and then, of course, there's the complications of how we should remember the Holocaust and why we should remember it. Dara Horn was on the show recently. She has a particularly intriguing book out, People Love Dead Jews, Report from a Haunted Present about how we should remember and what we should forget but of course no one beats if that's the right word remembering the holocaust in its poignancy and its tragedy than art spiegelman the author of mouse uh, a book which everybody knows if you don't you should a survivor's tale a graphic novelist's way of remembering the holocaust um Many of us are familiar with these images. Uh, Spiegelman is a remarkable artist and uh, writer. And I'm thrilled today that we're talking Spiegelman and Mouse, but not with Spiegelman himself, with another um, uh, associate of, of Spiegelman, uh, Hilary Shute, who's a scholar of graphic art and indeed of Spiegelman and, and Mouse. And she has edited a new book called Mouse Now Selective writing, and she's joining us from her home in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Uh, Hillary, I I warned you I'd have a long introduction. I apologize for that. Um, In terms of Spiegelman and Mouse, you obviously have a very personal investment in this. Indeed, um, and, and we're thrilled to have you on the show. You've been brought to us because of the Miami Book Fair, and you're doing a public conversation with Spiegelman there. Uh, in November, we'll talk about that a bit later in the show. Do you remember the moment when you first read Mouse or you first encountered it? Did it? What kind of impact did it have on you?
1: Wow, I will, I will never forget it because it was about 22 years ago, and I haven't stopped thinking about Mouse or writing about Mouse since. Um, so, I actually first read Mouse in a in a graduate seminar. I have a PhD in English and mouse was an assigned text in my contemporary literature course. And um, I was just blown away by this book. So this was in the fall of 2000. And I remember I was so stuck on this question of how come it worked so well to tell this kind of story you know, what did the drawings lend to the narrative shape of mouse that made it feel so moving and so effective and so fascinating? And how did these marks on the page create this world on the page? And I have to say, I went on to work on a book with Art Spiegelman called Meta Mouse, which came out in 2011. So I spent you know, five or six years working on this book with Spiegelman and with his archive. And I almost still don't feel like I've solved the question of how come it works so well. For me, it's just a book that I, I keep returning to. And every time I read it, I feel like I learned something
0: new. Uh, you've got a, an upcoming lecture actually uh, next week, comics as literature. Uh, you are a scholar of, of comics, if that's the right word, if it's not a majority. Yes. If it's not a pejorative word, Uh, I'm curious in terms of this experience of reading mouse you you encountered it in a graduate seminar, were you already focused on becoming a scholar of graphic literature or did this push you over the edge, so to speak.
1: This pushed me over the edge. Um, I knew that I was interested in history and narrative and memory. So other books in that class that moved me deeply and fascinated me were books like *Midnight's Children* by Salman Rushdie, or you know, um, uh, books by Thomas Pynchon. You know, uh, contemporary novelists who are working with the idea of how we narrate and understand history. But when I read *Mouse*, I knew I I, I knew that I was just hooked. And again, it was this question for me of how come this works so well? And so to try to answer that question, I went looking for other graphic literature and I found an entire world that I didn't know existed. You know, I found Spiegelman's other work, um, but I found cartoonists like the comics journalist Joe Sacco, for example, who does brilliant, um, you know, reporting from conflict zones all over the world. And I found a lot of works that are about trauma and about memory and about world historical conflict. And so one of the things I became intensely interested in is this question of comics and really hand drawing as a form of of witnessing war. And I have to say there there are a lot of comics that do that kind of work. And I think it's because there's both an intimacy to drawing and also an urgency and an immediacy.
0: The subtitle, uh, you know, of course, we've all read *Mouse*. I mean, if you haven't, you, as I said earlier, you have to. Uh, but I'd forgotten the subtitle. My father bleeds history. Perhaps, um, Hilary, for the benefit of people who aren't as familiar as you are with with the Art Spiegelman narrative, you might briefly tell us about the history of his work, about how it came about. And of his relationship with his father
1: yes so um that that subtitle mouse a survivor's tale my father bleeds history is so evocative so so mouse is a twinned narrative which is is part of its brilliance it is both about Vladik spiegelman's testimony as a person. That's his,
0: sorry to interrupt that's his father
1: Yes, I was, ju- I was just about to explain. Vladik Spiegelman is Art's father. So it's both about the testimony of the father figure um, that, that is really the motor of the book and Vladik Spiegelman's experiences in, in Poland leading up to the war, during the war where he was, you know, interned in death and concentration camps and then after the war. And it's also a story about the cartoonist son's struggle to visualize this story in comics so it's sort of both a biography and an autobiography it's both a deeply powerful and direct work of testimony and it's also a book that is about sort of philosophically the question of how one represents to use a phrase of spiegelman's the oxymoron of life in a death camp So it's about all of these problems of how to bear witness in images to this kind of of testimony. So I think that's really part of its power and part of the bleeding history. So one of the sort of tensions in the book, which is in some ways also a, a family drama, is that in the present tense of the book, Spiegelman, who's an artist in his 30s, is visiting his older father, who's not physically well, and asking him questions about his experience and Art Spiegelman's mother's experience in the war. And so we not only get the testimony itself, but we get Spiegelman, the artist, trying to solicit the testimony from his father, trying to get his father to answer questions. And we get all of these interesting tensions I think that are inherent to testimony itself you know testimony isn't always chronological it doesn't always fit the form that the listener wants you know testimony is a performance testimony is elusive and so that's part of the struggle of the artist's son to try to figure out the details when his father in some ways would rather talk about other things
0: there's an interesting ft piece recently um which suggested that Mouse, and I'm quoting the piece um, uh, by um, N- N- Nilan Jana Roy. Um, she argues that uh, Mouse paved the way for serious nonfiction subjects to be presented as comic books. Uh, um, do you think that's true in, in in terms of the history of the genre?
1: I think that's that's absolutely true. Um, and I read that great piece in the Financial Times. Um, I think she got it exactly right, and I would say it's Mouse, you know, even more so than than any other work um, of graphic narrative or graphic literature or graphic novels, however you want to call it, that really shifted the terrain. So, you know, Mouse, for example, won a Pulitzer Prize in 1992. Mouse is a series; it has two books. The first came out in '86, and the second came out in '91. In 1992, it was awarded a Pulitzer Prize, but it was awarded a special Pulitzer Prize because the committee wasn't sure into which category to put a work about the Holocaust that pictured Jews as mice and Nazis as cats. So to me, that detail is so telling because what it reveals is is just how much mouse changed cultures of expression, How there how there wasn't really... An awareness and a language to understand what it was doing until it did the thing that made everybody consider the categories. <laughs> you know what's so special about this book? You know how come it can't fit into other you know previously assigned categories? So it really sort of blew everything open.
0: Yeah, it's a sort of a double award that they couldn't even figure out the category. You've been very right. patient, Hillary. You've you've created the foundation. So let's come to your new book, which you edited. Um, It is yours, although you didn't formally write it. It's called Mouse Now Selected Writing. Um, Perhaps you might talk a little bit about its background about what you're trying to do in terms of assembling a collection of very distinguished writers uh, uh, who all address the question of mouse.
1: Yes, so one thing I've always been struck about um, in terms of criticism that exists on mouse is that it really spans a whole range of different kinds of writing. So there is a lot of academic writing about mouse coming from literary studies, that's my background, coming from art studies, from media studies, from memory studies, from trauma studies. From Holocaust studies, you know, from American studies, from European studies, mouse gets taught in political science classes. It gets taught in sociology classes and anthropology classes. It has a very wide range of um, academic interest. But mouse has also been written about in really powerful ways um, by people like the novelist Philip Pullman, or you know, by critics like New Yorkers um, Adam Gopnik. And so, Mouse um, has earned a sort of healthy interest always, not only from the academics, but also from the mainstream literary and artistic press. And so, what I wanted to do with this book was to assemble the best writing on Mouse, um, and there's a lot, from the 1980s when it first appeared to the present with both academic essays and you know, essays that we would find in the Guardian or the New York Times and other other mainstream venues. And so it was really important to me to just just pick the writing that really crackled, whether academic mm. or, you know, in the New York Times book review, and writing that really helped to shape the discourse around mouse. Now, part of the way I always envisioned this book was also as a global book. So my goal was to seek the best writing on mouse published in any language, in any country, in any context. And so one of the things about the book that I'm proud of is that I have here translated in English for the first time um, essays from um, Hebrew, German and French. And I I considered any essays that I could find and get translated from any national tradition. But there are works here that um, people wouldn't have read before in English.
0: Did you solicit any of the essays or were they all pre-existing?
1: They were all pre-existing. So the idea was, you know, I wrote an introduction, which is new, to sort of frame the work of the book and frame the idea of mouse now, which is the premise of the book. But I really wanted to look back and see how mouse had shaped public criticism and academic criticism. So the essays are all essays that had previous contexts um, before they were printed in my book. And that was sort of part of what I wanted to do. I wanted to step back and take stock of what was out there and where it was published and what traditions it came from.
0: Uh, The book is divided into three parts, um, uh, context, problems of representation and legacy. You might briefly explain that structure.
1: Sure, so the book is loosely chronological. I didn't want to do a boring academic book because it's not an academic book. It's published by Pantheon, which is also Spiegelman's publisher. Um, So it's not entirely chronological, but I did want to lay the groundwork in the opening section for the way it was received toward the beginning of its publication history. So um, for people who might not know, as I mentioned, Mouse first came out in these um, series of books in 1986 and 1991, published by Pantheon. But it had also earlier been serialized, um, starting in 1980, in the avant-garde comics and graphics magazine Raw, which was published by Art Spiegelman and his wife, Francoise Mouly, who is now and has been for um, you know almost uh, 40 years the art director of The New Yorker. So um, back in the 80s, they published their own magazine and Mouse first appeared chapter by chapter, starting in the second issue of that magazine. So one of the earliest pieces that I have in the context section is by the brilliant critic Ken Tucker, who people might um, be familiar with from Fresh Air, um, where he's often reviewing things. Um, But back in the 80s, Ken Tucker did something that was um, really unheard of, which is he wrote a a review in the New York Times Book Review before Mouse was even published as a book. So he was writing not only about a comic book, but he was writing about a comic book that was being serialized at the time of writing and was being published in a small press venue, which which is Raw Magazine. And his support and celebration of that book in an early moment in the 80s um, really helped the book um, gain a positive word of mouth even before it was published in a volume that people could buy at the bookstore. So I was interested in that section in pointing out how important pieces like that had been to the publication history of mouse. Problems of representation, I would say, is the section that perhaps is the most academic, where um, a lot of the work in that section considers Maus's legacy as a work about the Holocaust and how it really helped to shape Holocaust studies. So um, as you mentioned in your introduction, there has been incredibly powerful work and you know, I winced just um, looking at that um, photograph from the Ukraine that you showed.
0: Are you familiar with that book? It's a, it's an excellent book.
1: It's a brilliant book and, and it's hard to look at that photograph for me even for a moment. Yeah, I mean, that's um, why I
0: think it's so important. That I always show the photo. I mean, it's a very unpleasant photo but it needs to be shown.
1: It happened, right? It happened. So we need to reckon with that. Um, so even if it's unpleasant, it's important. But, you know, so much of Holocaust studies had fixed on the role of photography and mouse really opened up um, considering drawing and witnessing in a really powerful way. So this is what I mean by the idea of problems of representation. How does one express, you know, the worst realities of, of history? And obviously people have done that in prose and they've done that in very powerful ways, Um, with photography and and mouse really focused our attention on what it means to to draw about this kind of um, testimony and then the last section um, which is called legacy has the most contemporary work in the book and You know, it has fantastic pieces like Elisa Solomon's piece Which is about Spiegelman's museum show which was at the Jewish Museum a few years ago called comics so it's considering um, how mouse has been important, you know, not only in the mainstream press and in classrooms and in people's homes and their private reading experiences, but in the art world, for example, you know, so I'm, I'm, I'm. You've pleased. got a Robert
0: Storr uh, contribution as well.
1: Brilliant essay by Robert Storr um, that was published on the occasion of him curating A show about mouse at the MoMA in the early 90s. So yes, one of the things I really want to hit home with this book is how much mouse has changed the idea of what one can exhibit on a wall. You know, most cartoonists think of comics as a medium done for print, but as as Storr and Elisa Solomon and others point to, it's often brilliantly installed on a wall in a way that reveals something not only about the work itself, but about, you know, what we consider fine art and art that's worthy of, you know, hanging on a white wall in a museum or a gallery space.
0: It's become publicly owned, Mouse. And I'm sure Art Spiegelman is happy on on the one hand, but on the other hand, ambivalent. You you obviously know the guy pretty well. What is he happy and unhappy about, about the way in which the book has been received and this development of a a mouse industry, which I'm sure he's also slightly ambivalent about, or I'm guessing he's ambivalent about.
1: Well, you guessed right. (laughs) Um, But there's something interesting that that I try to trace in my introduction to this book, which is that um, Spiegelman's view on the so called mouse industry and the way people have received mouse has changed. And so I'll narrate a little bit about what I understand about what it was in the beginning, and then also about what has changed, which is in some ways the premise for the idea of a book that could plausibly, incredibly be called Mouse now. So, um, you know, Spiegelman did not expect this work to be a huge success. Yeah. He was coming out of underground comics, in which um, you know, it was a sort of high modernist moment, except it was happening in San Francisco and New York in the 1970s. Um, You know, there was a powerful belief in the artistic value of comics, but not a lot of um, investment or um, belief in its commercial value. So it was really sort of a moment in which cartoonists were trying to disaggregate artistic value and commercial value for comics, which previously had been totally You know, entwined. So Spiegelman's coming out of underground comics and he had always thought that he and Francoise Mouly would self-publish Mouse um, with their raw comics and graphics um, imprint. So I think he had always thought that it would be a book, but he thought it would be a self-published book. Um, And, you know, when he sent it out to publishers um, in the 80s, it was rejected by dozens and dozens of publishers. And when we worked together on the book Metamouse, we had a sort of double spread photograph in the book showing all of the rejection letters, you know, piled up on a table. And I should note that it was rejected by Pantheon the first time. <laughs> and it was only the second time it was submitted to Pantheon. In a well, the of- best
0: books are always the ones that get rejected, Hillary.
1: That's right, of course, that it was actually published. So he was surprised that it was such a success and as he details in the second volume of mouse it was crippling for him to think about a book based on so much suffering and a book that recounts and visualizes so much suffering being a commercial success so mm. it led him to a very profound writer's block that becomes part of the story in the second volume of mouse so you know, he has always been very ambivalent about the success, the commercial success of a book based on suffering. And I should say that one thing that I've always found fascinating is that at some point he also really felt uncomfortable thinking about *Mouse* specifically as the Jewish book. Um, You know, in its substance, it is obviously a Jewish book. It's about Jewish people. It's about the genocide of Jewish people. Um, It's about Jewish traditions. It's about a Jewish family who conceive of themselves as Jewish in very profound, if very different ways among different family members. But Spiegelman wanted it to have a wider audience and not to be pigeonholed as a Jewish book. So he felt some sort of um, discomfort with the way it was often um, taken up as a Jewish book. That changed after Trump was elected in 2016. So I would say there was a real shift in which, after decades of feeling that discomfort, so much so that in 2005, he pulled his work from a group show called Masters of American Comics when it came to the Jewish Museum, because he didn't want it to be received only in a Jewish context. He came around on this issue, and he started feeling that, yes, this book was and is a text of resistance to fascism and that its context as the Jewish book is an important aspect of its resistance to specifically Nazism and associated forms of fascism. And he started owning that context for the book. And he started giving talks called Mouse Now. And so I borrowed the title of, of my book, Mouse Now, from talks that he started giving In the wake of Trump being elected, but specifically in the wake of events such as the deadly Charlottesville um, rally, um, you know, in which people were chanting, Jews will not replace us, and the deadly Tree of Life um, synagogue shooting in Pittsburgh in 2018. We
0: did a show on that, actually.
1: Yep. So, you know, as anti Semitism started becoming more legible in our contemporary present tense, Spiegelman really um, opened up his thinking about the power of thinking about Maus as a Jewish book that resists fascism. So there's been a change, and hence, we're at the now of Maus now.
0: All right. So the book, in an odd way, has its own life, like so many great books. Um, you mentioned Adam Gopnik. Uh, you've got an essay by Gopnik in the book. I wouldn't have personally have expected that. His latest book is The Moral Adventure of Liberalism. <laughs> Do you think there is a, a political philosophy at the heart of Mouse? I mean, Spiegelman is a graphic artist. He's not a political philosopher. But is there a core value, a philosophy of liberalism, or something else uh, in, in your analysis of, of, of mouse? Are there uh, a set of values?
1: That's such an interesting question. Um, yes, I think mouse does have a set of values. I don't know if there's a philosopher to whom I would ascribe those values, but I can try to articulate the way I understand them. So, um, Two of the things that Mouse does that other works about the Holocaust don't do, or I should say, maybe three things. Um, one, this is a work that is very much, as I was just describing, um, about the presence of the past. So I would say that that Mouse, in my view, um, is more linked with sort of philosophies of history. I know Spiegelman is a big fan of the Yale historian Timothy Snyder mm. um, and his work about the persistence of fascism.
0: Yeah, Snyder's so, been on, on the show as well.
1: He's brilliant. And I just have to say, um, the graphic um, version of his book that came out with Nora Krug, um, I'm looking at it. It's on my... Yeah,
0: I was, when I was doing some research for, for this conversation, I noted that Snyder's book on... Um, uh, on Tyranny. On Tyranny has been turned into a graphic novel. It's very intriguing.
1: It's brilliant and I'm not surprised that he is interested in the power of graphic narrative because I think you know he and Spiegelman have a lot in common. So I, I would say that, that that idea that history is not progressive right um, that, that, that hist- you know the past isn't past to cite the famous Faulkner quote that people love to cite these days. you know the past isn't isn't dead it's not even past. I think that is the central premise of the mouse series and i think there's a kind of clear eyedness about mouse that is indicated in that philosophy and so you know mouse is also a book that doesn't um sacralize or sanctify the figure of the survivor which makes it different from other second generation works about the holocaust spiegelman has said you know something you know it's a sort of a, a realist point of view he has said suffering doesn't make you a better person suffering just makes you suffer and I think that's something that we see very um, powerfully and very movingly in the portrayal of his father Vladik Spiegelman in in the book Mouse And you know I would say also you know this isn't a book that posits any kind of positive connection to Israel you know unlike other famous, works of cultural production about the Holocaust, like Steven Spielberg's Schindler's List, in which there's a kind of um, coda at the end, in which um, survivors are putting stones um, on on graves in Israel. So um, uh, I would say that there's a kind of, um, I mean, we might call it a realist political philosophy, but I think of it more as a kind of theory of history that I see reflected in historians like Snyder and their work.
0: The past is not past. It's not uh, the part. Well, what, what's the uh, the quote? The, the past is. The, the,
1: well, so there's a Faulkner quote, um, and yeah, I can't remember what exactly. The past yeah. isn't dead. It's not even past. Is that right.
0: it? And one could say the same oh. about books. Books are never dead. They're not even past. And that's certainly the case with Mouse. It's back in the news. Uh, there's um, McMinn County in Tennessee has banned the book. Uh And parents are fighting back. Um, It's particularly ironic and troubling, um, Hillary, that people would be banning this book of all books. What what do you make of that? I mean, of course, it makes Mouse Now increasingly relevant. But why would anyone ever ban this book from being taught in school or read by school kids?
1: Yes. So um, perhaps needless to say, Mouse Now was in the works (laughs) before, um, you know, um, it was banned in McMinn County, Tennessee this past January. So it was a sort of moment in which I felt like, aha, yes, of course, the continuing relevance of Mouse. And I think that continuing relevance is that Mouse calls attention in a very profound way, particularly by virtue of it being graphic, to the persistence of histories of racialized violence. And so I see the ban um, uh, in McMinn County um, of Mouse as of a piece with bans on critical race theory and works about slavery and this kind of widespread and I think galling and terrifying trend In the United States and elsewhere um in which works that acknowledge the persistence of racialized violence are being banned and so um as I said I think the graphic aspect of mouse makes that very vivid in a way that the school board um felt was too much
0: yeah, it's really, uh, it's really shocking. Well, that's why we need uh, your new book, Mouse. Now, ironically enough, it's 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 textual representations by uh, people like Philip Pullman, uh, uh, Robert Store, uh, Ruth Franklin. I mentioned uh, Adam Gopnik, as well as a, a new introduction. Uh, by my guest, um, Hilary Shute. Congratulations Hilary on the book. Sorry, did you wanna say something? I assume (laughs) there's some graphic stuff too.
1: (laughs) I wanted to jump in and just um, say that there are over 70 images from mouse in the book. So that is another aspect of this book that I'm very proud of because of my close collaboration with Spiegelman over the years, I had access to use images from mouse. So these writers might be, you know, writing about mouse in prose, but there are plenty of images to help them make their points.
0: Well, I'm uh, thrilled and, to announce that uh, Hilary Shute will be talking with um, Art Spiegelman in person, live at the Miami Book Fair in November. Do you know the date? that the, the fair is the 13th to the 20th. Do you know what date you're going to be talking to, to Spiegelman?
1: Um, I'm pretty sure that it is a Monday evening is November 13th, a plausible Monday date. It's probably one of
0: the launches. I mean, it's I'm not (laughs) going because I've got to be somewhere else, but I would love to be there. I'm assuming it's going to be sold out. It's essential viewing. Um, And I'm hoping Hillary, you'll ask him some probing questions. I'm trusting you. You will.
1: That's my favorite.
0: Good. Well, uh, we'll have to get Spiegelman on the show. Does he do public interviews or is he a bit shy?
1: Um, well, I would say that he, he has done public interviews and there was a, a great one on CNN in, in January of this past year, but he's been so inundated since the book ban. Um, you know, he, he always quips, you know, it was like the best publicity ever for Mouse, but, um, yeah. you know, it's been sort of a, a windfall in terms of public interest um, f- f- to get him to talk about it.
0: Well, I wish I could be there. It's going to be a great event. We're also very thankful to the uh, Miami Book Fair for their generous um, help in getting a number of other speakers in in Miami, including Stacey Schiff, who's going to be on the show. She has a new book out about Samuel Adams and the uh, African-American writer Ellis Coase has a new book out, Race and Reckoning. So lots more good stuff from Miami. Have fun, uh, Hillary. A real honor to talk to you. Uh, any other suggestions him. on good books, particularly graphic novels that maybe our audience won't be familiar with? Everyone knows Mouse, of course.
1: A- absolutely. So um, I have been loving the reissue that just came out of the cartoonist Linda Berry's book called Come Over, Come Over. For people who don't know Linda Berry, she has been publishing alternative comics since the 1970s, and she is one of the most brilliant and the most funny chroniclers of childhood and adolescence. And her book, Come Over, Come Over, was just reissued by the independent comics publisher, Drawn and Quarterly, and I I sort of couldn't love it more. It's about a hard-scrabble family, including a whole group of sisters um, in their adventures. And I have to say, I've also been reading comics about abortion. Mm. Um, And so, you know, I'm always interested in how comics reflect public events. There's a brilliant anthology that came out before the Dobbs uh, decision. Um, You see, I get all like tongue tied when I talk about Dobbs before the recent decision overturning Roe v. Wade called Comics for Choice. That's a brilliant anthology of short comics work about abortion. And there's a brilliant graphic novel about abortion From 2015 that I've been rereading called Not Funny Ha Ha, which shows two different people's experiences, one having a surgical abortion and one having a medical abortion. So I think work that bears witness to those realities is incredibly powerful in comics form, and I expect there'll be more comics about abortion coming up soon, given the recent decision.